0: you will, uh, take your Bibles one more time, uh, one final time this morning, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We've been working our way through the chapter a few verses at a time, and this morning we're going, uh, Lord willing, to focus on verses 14 through 21. So Romans 12, 14 to 21, and as I've been doing, I'm going to read the first two verses to remind you what the passage is really all about and where Paul is coming from and then we'll skip down and read verses 14 through 21 as well. So Romans 12:1 and 2 and then Romans 12:14 through 21. Therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable, and perfect. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, I do pray that you would again this morning renew our minds, that we may approve that we may understand, that we may embrace that which is good, all of these things that you command us to do, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So renew our minds, we pray. Point us to your great mercy toward us in Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm no theologian, um, as though sort of that gives us an excuse to not really know what we're talking about when it comes to the Bible. Um, but the truth is, the Bible teaches us to become theologians, doesn't it? Even here in Romans twelve two, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds are to learn what God is like and what his word says. So, though we may not be professionals at it, each of us in our own measures to be a theologian, to understand God. But I want you to see also, especially in this passage this morning and in others as well, that the Bible also says we should be uh, anthropologists. An anthropologist is someone who studies mankind, who studies human nature. And though the Bible is a book of theology primarily, it's also a book of anthropology. It's also a book that tells us about people and about ourselves and how we should respond to specific people and so on. For instance, in Colossians 4, 6, which Paul also wrote, uh, he tells us that we need to know how to respond to each person. We need to be anthropologists. We need to be able to understand people so that we can respond to them, each different person, appropriately. In that context, in Colossians 4, he's talking about evangelistically, we need to know how to respond to each person. Each person that we might share Jesus with, we need to know what we are to say. And people are different. Some people are skeptical about the Bible, others not so much. Some people are already convicted of their sins and are looking for forgiveness. Other people are high-handed in their sins, and they haven't been brought to a place of conviction yet. Some people grew up in church, and they know the terminology, and other people we may talk to need things to be explained to them because they haven't read the Bible yet. All of these different people, they all need the same good news of Jesus, right? But Paul says in Colossians, we need to... Understand each different person, we may need to come at them from slightly different angles. Some of them we may need to major on the fact and the ugliness of sin, others, the wonders of forgiveness. Some people we need to begin with Genesis and to show them what the Bible says about the fact that there is a God, and others already know that. Some people, as we deal with them, we may need to brush up on our understanding of science, others, they need a tight definition of justification, and it could go on and on. And the point being, That Paul says, not just here in Romans 12, but elsewhere as well, that people are different. And when we share the gospel, we need to be aware of that fact. We have the same gospel, but people have different questions. They have different errors that they've imbibed. They have different points that may need to be emphasized to them. Now, that's Colossians 4, how to respond to each person as it relates to sharing the truth about Jesus with them. But we get the same sort of thing here at the end of Romans 12, how to respond to each person. Only in this case, Paul is not teaching us so much how to respond to each person as it relates to sharing Jesus with them, but simply how to respond to each person to all sorts of different kinds of people in interpersonal relationships. I think if you look at these verses again, you'll see that's what is happening. We relate to all sorts of people who are at all different phases and stations in their lives, and we need to know how to respond to various different kinds of people in an appropriate, loving, biblical fashion. Everyone is different. And so, our watchword with all people is always love, right? But the point of this passage is though our watchword is always love, love shows itself to different people and in different situations in different ways. For instance, verse 15, you love a rejoicing person differently than you love a weeping person. You love them both, right? But the way that you respond in that situation is different. Or in verse 14, you love a proud persecutor differently then you handle a lowly person in verse 16. So God's formula, of course, for interpersonal relationships is always that we love people. But what Paul is trying to say to us now is we love different people at different stations of life in different ways. That's really what these verses are all about. How to respond to each person that we encounter in... Love. I hope that's interesting to you. I hope that you want to love people no matter who they are and to figure out what God says about how to do so. Paul is going to speak to us about how we should respond in love to seven different groups of people. To those who persecute us in verse 14. To those who rejoice in verse 15. To those who weep in the second half of verse 15. How do we respond to one another in the church in verse 16. How do we respond to the lowly also in verse 16. How do we respond to ourselves at the end of verse 16? Then Paul in verses 17 and 18 tells us how to respond to all people, to the general populace. And then he comes back in verses 19 through 21 and speaks again about how we respond to those who persecute us. How do we show honor? How do we show respect? How do we love all sorts of different people? Well, there's not a cookie cutter answer. You can't speak to everyone exactly the same. You can't befriend everyone exactly the same. I think we know this from our own experiences, don't we? Different people are different. We approach them different ways if we're wise. If we're wise, we understand personalities and age groups and social classes and sin habits and people's backgrounds and their emotional makeups and their cultural ideas and relational dynamics between groups of people. A wise person understands that folks are different and a wise person, Paul is teaching us here, is flexible enough to know how to respond to each person. So before we even look at specifically what Paul says, maybe I should just ask you, are you flexible enough? to be able to adjust your tenor and your tone and your angle of approach, even perhaps your decorum, to match the needs of the people around you so that you can really show love to them. Are you wise enough to notice different people and then flexible enough to actually respond to them in ways that are appropriate? That's what Paul is going on about here at the end of Romans 12. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to be flexible. He wants us to know how to respond to each person in love. And as I said already, he mentions seven groups of people. The first group there in verse 14 are those who persecute you. But then he's going to loop back around and talk about them again in the last verses of the chapter. So we're going to come back to them and save them for last. And what we're going to do then is pick up beginning in verse 15 and work our way straight to the end, learning how to respond to each of these seven different groups of people. I hope that sort of Map, outline, makes sense for where we're going. So first, in verse 15, Paul speaks about how we respond to those who rejoice. And it's very simple, isn't it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Those instructions, I think, are fairly straightforward. But let me just say a few things to help drive them home. First of all, when Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice, he's talking about all kinds of people who rejoice. We saw him recently speaking mainly about how we handle other Christians, other people in this room with us. But here he's speaking about all people who rejoice, believers and unbelievers. Now it's easy sometimes to rejoice with people who are believers, people who understand the things of the scriptures and are are walking the same track as you are. Believers are easy to rejoice with because they're usually, hopefully, rejoicing in the right things. They're rejoicing in the right ways. They're not turning their successes into idolatry. And so when we see a believer doing well, they are responding well to it. And it's easy to say, well, I'm going to rejoice with him or her because he's rejoicing in the right things. But sometimes if we rejoice with our unbelieving friends, that requires a little more thought. Clearly, Paul's intent is not that we rejoice with people who are rejoicing in their sin, right? Sometimes people do this. Even Christians do this from time to time. We rejoice in things that ought to make us ashamed. We glory in things that are actually sinful. And so Paul is not here saying, hey, no matter what somebody's rejoicing in, even if it's sinful, you should rejoice with them. And sometimes people rejoice in the right things, but in sinful ways, right? You can rejoice in a wedding, or the 4th of July, or a birthday, or go to the office Christmas party, and all of these things are good things to rejoice in, but sometimes the people that are rejoicing are rejoicing in very sinful ways. And so verse 15 is not a blanket statement that we rejoice in everything that we ever come across that someone else is rejoicing in. 1 Corinthians 13.6, which Paul wrote, reminds us not to rejoice in unrighteousness. So we have to think a little bit. How do we rejoice with our unbelieving friends? But uh, there's, a, there's an equal and opposite danger. Sometimes we may think well, we need to rejoice with them even when we know they're rejoicing in that which is sinful. But it's also possible to be so conscientious that your friend or your neighbor is not a believer in Jesus that you're unable to rejoice with them even when it's legitimate to do so. In other words, it's possible to look at someone and to see them rejoicing in their promotion and to say to yourself inside, what's the use in congratulating them for their promotion? He's still dead in his sins. Well, we need to have wisdom here. One of the most winsome testimonies can be to our unbelieving friends if we were able to rejoice with them in legitimate and godly ways when there's reason to rejoice. Let me also say this about verse 15a, rejoice with those who rejoice. Whether you're doing this rejoicing with a fellow believer or with an unbeliever, it requires effort. And maybe that's a good word for some of us, effort. Rejoicing with someone means that you come to the birthday party or you go to the wedding or you're there at the shower or you attend the baptism or whatever it may be. It requires you to put forth effort. And sometimes the effort is to be able to voice congratulations to someone or praise to someone or love to someone, even if that's not natural for you to do. Some of us don't very easily naturally voice our feelings. But if you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice, you're going to have to get yourself in a position to do it. It requires effort to do this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the first thing. But now, secondly, I want you to see at the end of that same verse, verse 15, Paul speaks about how to respond with people at the opposite end of the spectrum, how to respond to those who weep. And again, he's clear, weep with those who weep. Now, I think this is understandable. Again, we won't linger long on it because it's very straightforward. But let me say a couple of things once more to drive it home. First, the same thing is true in verse 15b as is true in verse 15a. If you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice or if you're going to weep with those who weep, it's going to require effort from you. It means you have to be at the funeral or the visitation. You have to go to the hospital and visit. You have to put thought and effort into the card that you're going to send in the moment of grief. Maybe it means that you're going to do all sorts of practical things when someone's grieving, like take care of meals for them or do their laundry for them or so on. And sometimes when someone's grieving, you may not feel like you have much to say or you know what to say, but families and individuals who have grieved will attest to the fact that it's very important simply that you be there, even if you don't have anything important to say. And that leads me to something else. There are few more meaningful times in a person's life than when they're grieving over something May not seem like it at the time, but people who are grieving, people who are at the bottom of the pit, they really do remember who was there in the hospital or at the graveside. They remember that you offered sincere comfort or sent a card, even if they don't remember exactly what you said. In fact, some of the best friendships and pastoral relationships that I have were formed during periods of grief and disappointment and anguish and trial, either when I was going through one of those things, or someone else. There's just something about someone being there for you when you're grieving that's powerful. And it's especially powerful if you can be there for someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. It's a great opportunity to show them what Jesus is like, Jesus who comes alongside of us in our sorrows. And so if you weep with your coworkers or your neighbors when they weep, what a great show of the love of Christ. And finally, let me say this about weeping with those who weep. When we think about weeping with those who weep, probably for most of us, our thoughts gravitate towards the graveside and the funeral home. That's certainly where people are weeping uh, at their deepest points, usually. But when we read about weeping with those who weep, there are other instances where this verse applies. People also weep and grieve when their marriages break up when their kids go astray, when they're laid off from their jobs and don't know what they're going to do, when their houses are destroyed by fire or flood or what have you. People weep when they feel like a failure in life. People weep when they're overcome by conviction of their sin. And all of these are areas where God's people are called to be anthropologists and to notice those who are struggling and then to weep with those who weep. So let me just ask you, who is it for you? Is there somebody in your life right now that God could say to you and put his finger right on your heart and say, weep with those who weep? Who is it for you? I hope that you will weep with those who weep. Now, thirdly, Paul speaks to us about how we respond to one another in verse 16. One another, again, being Uh, Just another way for him to refer to the folks that are inside the church, your fellow believers. How do you respond to one another? Well, he says in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Is that sufficiently vague for you? Be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind about what? About weeping and rejoicing from verse 15? Be of the same mind about doctrine and theology? Is that what he's talking about? Be of the same mind about what color carpet belongs in the church auditorium. What is Paul talking about here when he says we should be of the same mind toward one another in the church? All of those things that I just mentioned, all of them. In other words, verse 16a may seem vague to us, it may seem unspecific, but I think it's intentionally so. Paul is not saying that we need to be of the same mind about this thing or that thing or the other thing, but he's just saying, blanket statement, be of the same mind toward one another. Think in unison as a church, about everything. How do we love one another in the church? Well, one very important way, Paul says here, is by striving to think in unison, to be able to come to unity, to come to agreement about all sorts of things, from what we believe about the atonement to what we believe about the color of the carpet. Now, I don't want to oversimplify here. I want you to realize that unity is not the same as uniformity. In other words... You may prefer green carpet, and I may prefer brown carpet, and it's okay that we have different preferences. That we don't have uniformity, because unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is if everybody has to pick the same color, but unity is when the color is finally chosen, that even the people who didn't get the color they liked are willing to accept it, and rejoice that we at least have carpet. Right? We're not recarpeting the auditorium anytime soon. I'm just using that as an example. But on a more important plane, unity is when when two brothers may disagree about the doctrines, for instance, of election and predestination, or when two sisters may have varying opinions on how to school their children, and we need not be uniform in these areas, but we must be unified, and what that means is that though we may have differing ideas on certain things that we don't bicker, we don't judge one another, we don't put secondary issues as a test of fellowship. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Think in unison. Now, of course, there are non-negotiables where we have to be uniform in order to have unity. In other words, I can't say Jesus is the only Savior and someone else say Jesus is not the only Savior and we can walk together in unity. That doesn't work, does it? We have to be in unison And even in uniformity about certain things. That's why the church has a statement of faith. It's very basic, but it tries to put down the main things that we believe the Bible says are the main things. Things like the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as he's revealed in the Bible alone, and all that to the glory of God alone. There are certain things that we must agree on with uniformity. But within the confines of a local church, like this one, we're much more likely to be split or to have division over secondary matters, aren't we? By and large, we agree on the big things, but isn't it easy how the little foxes can ruin the vineyard? How the little things can create disunity? And Paul simply warns against that when he says, blanket statement about the little things and the big things, be of the same mind toward one another. Think in unity. Then fourthly, he speaks about how to respond to the lowly, how to respond to those who rejoice, how to respond to those who weep, how to respond to one another in the church. Now, fourthly, how to respond, verse 16b, to the lowly. Listen to what he says. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Now, Paul's done this several times in this chapter, and here he does it again. He gives us a command that has two sides of the same coin. Do you see it there? Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. He gives us something not to do, and then he gives us something to do. So on the one hand, he says, do not be haughty in mind. In other words, don't go around thinking that you're better than other people. We'll follow up on this a bit in the next heading in the last part of this verse, but let's just take this phrase for what it's worth right now. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't think that you're better than other people. What does that require? Well, it requires you to have the right assessment of yourself, first of all, right? Think about yourself clear-headedly. Remember your own limitations and your own sins and your own foibles and your own blind spots. Again, we'll come back to this. But not thinking that you're better than other people not only requires you to have a right assessment of yourself, but it ha- requires you to have a right assessment of those other people, right? And so if you're not going to be haughty in mind toward one another, it's good to remember that every other believer in Jesus is, has the same Jesus as you, is going to the same heaven as you, has the same privilege of prayer as you, has the same Holy Spirit living inside him or her as you, has the same Bible as you, and so on. Every other Christian is on the same plane with you at the foot of the cross. And let's remember that every other human being, even those who are without Christ, is made in the image of God, just like you and me. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. I found this fascinating as he speaks about the image of God in man and what that says about how we treat one another. It is a serious thing, says Lewis, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. In other words, the the strangest or lowliest person you see will either someday be glorified like Jesus in heaven or they will be forever in hell. All day long he says we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no, quote, ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Isn't that an awesome statement? You've never met someone who's a mere mortal. Everyone you deal with will either be glorified like Jesus in heaven or will spend an eternity in hell. And I hope you see how that relates to what Paul is saying here in Romans twelve sixteen. Given that everyone we ever meet is made in the image of God and created with moral capability and responsibility and having a soul that will live for eternity either in heaven and hell with the potential to be dazzling for Jesus... As his spotless bride, who are we to exalt ourselves over one another? Do not be haughty in mind. So one side of the coin there in verse 16B has to do with our minds, the other side of the coin has to do with our actions. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. In other words, it's not enough just to think well of other people, but specifically to associate with with other people, particularly, he says, those whom your colleagues might not expect you to have time for, those whom your family might think beneath you, those whom your friends might consider to be a waste of your time, to associate even with those whom other Christians might consider, quote, a lost cause. God wants us to associate with these people, people that the world would consider lowly. Now, when Paul speaks of the lowly, understand that he believes what we've just been saying, that no person is actually really any more lowly than any other person. Paul would agree with Lewis that we have never met a mere mortal. But he's using the term lowly. He's using a term of popular culture because he knows that popular culture sees certain people as lowly, doesn't it? Poor people, undereducated people, socially backward people, perplexed people, homeless people. Really sinful people. Some people see certain colors of skin as more or less lowly. Whatever it may be, these are, the, these are the things Paul is speaking about. He's not calling anyone lowly. He's just saying, if you think of someone as lowly, that's the very person that you ought to be spending your time with. And again, I would just ask, who is it for you? Who is it, perhaps, that your co-workers or family would never expect you to spend, find yourself spending a Saturday afternoon with? Who is it, perhaps, that your upbringing might lead you to think of as lowly or as untouchable? Whoever it is, Paul says, remember that you're no different than the lowly. Love the lowly, he says. Make time for the lowly. Befriend the lowly. Share Jesus with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Now, fifth point, Paul, at the end of verse 16, teaches us how to respond to ourselves. We respond correctly to all sorts of other people, but we also have to respond correctly when we look in the mirror. And that's what he says at the end of the verse. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, Paul has already spoken about how to think about yourself in relation to other people. We just covered that. But now, in the latter third of this verse, he's teaching us how to think about ourselves in relation to ourselves. When there's no one else in the room but you and yourself. How do you think about yourself? Do not be wise in your own estimation. I hope you can see that the emphasis there is on the words in your own estimation. Paul is not saying that we should not be wise, period. In fact, just a few chapters over in Romans 16, he tells us that he does indeed want us to be wise. So the point here is not that you should try to be unwise so that you can be humble. No, you should be wise, but the point is you shouldn't think of yourself as wise. You shouldn't take pride in what little wisdom you attain. You you should remember how much you still have to learn, and so should I. There's a reason, for instance, the Bible calls Jesus our shepherd and refers to us as his sheep, because sheep aren't naturally wise creatures. They need guidance all the time, or they go astray. And the Bible wants us to remember that about ourselves. We are his sheep. And that's what Paul is urging here. That we remember that no matter our educational background, no matter our level of experience, no matter how much of the Bible we know, no matter how much common sense we think we have, and no matter how many articles we've read on Wikipedia, there's still a lot we don't know, isn't there? A great deal we don't know, especially about godliness. And there are A great many times where we know the right things and we still behave foolishly aren't there and so really the main point of each of these last two headings is that we be humble we have a right estimation of ourselves in relation to other people but even when we're just in the bathroom on our own looking in the mirror do not be wise in your own estimation now sixthly and at a little bit more length paul speaks about how we respond to all men He's given us some specific groups. We've thought about those outside the church, those inside the church. We've thought about those who are weeping and those who are rejoicing. We've thought about others. We've thought about ourselves. We've thought about those who consider themselves wise. We've thought about others who are thought of by everyone else as lowly. But now Paul is going to cast his net even more broadly, and he's going to make two statements about how we should relate to and show honor to all men, all human beings, everyone around us, no matter what category they fit in. And that we find in verses 17 and 18. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Two things there. First, Paul urges us to respect what is right in the sight of all men. What does he mean by that? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Isn't our chief aim to respect what is right in the sight of God and not in the sight of men? Of course it is. But what Paul is teaching us here is that part of doing what's right in the sight of God is to take consideration for other people. Part of doing what's right in the sight of the Lord is to figure out what offends other people, to figure out what other people consider right and good behavior, to figure out how your neighbors feel about certain things, and to live in a way that is right in a sight in the sight of all men. In other words, part of being a Christian is not offending people when there's no need to offend people. Now, of course, some things that our culture may consider right are actually wrong. And again, that's not what Paul has in view here. He's thinking here in verse 17, rather, about things that are really neither here nor there biblically, but that are considered right and important in a given culture. We need to respect those things. That's why missionaries, when they move to other places, learn the culture so that they can respect the culture. Not so that they can take the things in the culture that are sinful, but the things in the culture that are neither here nor there. Do you build a church building in a square or is it round? Do people wear saris or do they wear suits? Those things are neither here nor there biblically, are they? And so what Paul is saying is respect what's right in your culture or in the culture to which you go. There's some examples of this in the New Testament. Jesus, you remember, didn't need to pay taxes in the temple. He was God's son, but he paid taxes nonetheless. In fact, he had Peter throw a line out into the water and catch a fish, and there was a coin in the mouth of the fish so that they could pay their temple tax. He didn't have to do that, but it was right in the sight of the people around him. He did it. Same thing with Paul and Timothy. Paul carried along Timothy as his assistant, but Timothy wasn't a full-blooded Jew. He had not been circumcised. But when they went to Jerusalem, he had Timothy circumcised because why? Because being circumcised was right in the sight of all men in that culture. And there was no reason to unnecessarily offend that. Some modern examples, perhaps for us, would be how do we dress in public? Do we dress in a way that intentionally draws attention to ourselves as different from everyone else? Or do we say, you know, I'm going to dress in public. I'm going to go to the schoolhouse or I'm going to go to work or whatever it is, and I'm just going to do what's right in the sight of all men. Maybe it's something as simple as how you care for your yard. If the people in your neighborhood care for their yards and you don't care for yours, guess what they're going to think about you, the Christian? Well, Christians just don't care about things that are important and that are right in the sight of all men. I'll give you a personal example. Uh, On one level, I think recycling is good and important. I don't want to waste my paper and my plastic. Um, But on another level, I know that the Bible doesn't give any commands specifically about how to recycle and when and where and and all these things. But, you know, I notice everybody on my street and in this neighborhood really thinks it's important not to be wasteful, and they recycle. And if I just decided, well, it's really, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me I have to recycle, so I'm not going to get one of those green buckets then I could potentially say to my neighbors, you know, you guys think something's important, and the Bible even does talk about creation, but I'm just not going to do it. It's not a way to love your neighbors, is it? It's not a way to, to present that we Christians care about things that are important. So he says, look around you, figure out what your culture is about, things that are right, things that don't, of course, conflict with the Bible, and... For the sake of the gospel, don't offend people unnecessarily. But also, something I never thought of, I was reading John Piper's sermon on this passage, and he pointed out something about verse 17 that I never thought of before. In other words, he said, it's not just verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. is not just that we find things in our culture that are neither here nor there, but that are important to our neighbors and that we work not to offend them. But he also emphasizes it this way, that we need to positively be doing things that are good and right in everyone's sight. In other words, he says, there are a lot of things that we see as praiseworthy and our neighbors do too. And we Christians ought to be the best at doing those, doing what's right in the sight of all men. Things like adopting orphans or helping battered women or visiting the sick or feeding the hungry or praying for our elected officials, disaster relief and so on. These things are right in the sight of all people, aren't they? Everybody looks at these things and they say, this is what people everywhere should do. And so part of what Paul is saying here is Christians ought to do this too, and we ought to lead the way in these things. When our neighbors think about compassion and caring, they ought to think about us. In other words, if your neighbor knows someone who's hungry, or if your neighbor knows someone who's being abused and needs a safe haven or some counsel or some help, if your neighbor is trying to think of somebody who might pray for her mom in the hospital. Your neighbor ought not to think of the folks at United Way or the Red Cross or the Free Store Food Bank first. Thank God for those people. But what Paul is saying is your neighbor ought to think of you first, the person across the street. I know that she does things that are right. He does things that are good. They care about people, and I'm going to go to them. And so verse 17b has a couple of applications. On the one hand, it teaches us what not to do. Don't offend people unnecessarily by taking cultural norms and just ignoring them. Let the gospel be what's unique about you. If someone is going to think you're weird, let it not be because you don't do the normal things that people do in our culture, but that you believe the gospel. But then the other side of the coin is, respect what is right in the sight of all men means actions. Or as Jesus says it, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So be involved, Paul says, in doing what is right in the sight of all men. And see if your neighbors don't begin to admire and respect the Christians who do what's right. And then there's another way he says to respond to all men in verse 18. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Slightly different idea. Let me put that into uh, the way we might say it. Don't be hard to deal with. Isn't that simple? Some of us maybe are this way. We're hard to deal with. But Paul says, don't be that way. Don't be the person who always complains about the food at the restaurant. Don't be the person over whose shoulder the boss is always having to look to see if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't be the problem child at school. Don't allow yourself to be the one that always gets sucked into debates and arguments at work. Now, again, if the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a division, so be it. But Paul is saying don't be divisive so far as it depends on you. Don't be divisive in your own actions, your own personalities. Don't be hard to deal with. Now, another implication of verse 18 is how we respond once there has been conflict. In other words, on one hand, this verse tells us not to create unnecessary conflict to begin with, but it also reminds us of what to do when there has been conflict. Our responsibility is to try to make peace, if possible. If you as a Christian have a breach of peace with another person, whoever that person is, it's your job to go back and make peace with them. Paul is writing these words to those inside the church don't wait for that other person to come to you he says as far as it depends on you you go and be at peace with them even if you think it's totally his or her fault which it rarely ever is but even if you think it is you go and be at peace with him or her Paul doesn't say be at peace with him or her as long as they didn't do something really harsh to you or as long as you had a little bit of blame in the process he just says blanket be at peace if possible with all men And, of course, there is an important proviso in the middle of the verse. So far as it depends on you. Because you can't guarantee that the other person is going to even give you the time of day, can you? You can apologize or forgive all you want, but they may not reciprocate. And so that's why Paul says, if it's possible, and so far as it depends on you, do this. But you're not held hostage. You don't have to feel disobedient if you've done all you can and there's still no peace. But you do have to feel disobedient if you haven't yet done as far as it depends on you. And you know, you might be surprised if you will seek peace, how often you may achieve it. I've learned that by experience because I've done and said a lot of stupid and hurtful things. And you'd be surprised how many people have forgiven me. Most of them looking at me even now. If you'll go to people, if you'll... As far as it depends on you, seek peace with all men. You may well find it. Finally, Paul speaks about how to respond to those who persecute you. He does this in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He does it in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then he comes back to it again in verses 19 to 21. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, again, quickly, there are two sides of the coin here. On one hand, Paul tells us what not to do. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. He tells us what not to do. And that's hard enough, isn't it? To have someone do evil to you or to your family, to say something to you that's very hurtful, and to not take revenge, to not try and get even. It's hard. From the time that we were young and our sibling pinched us, we've realized that it's in our nature to retaliate, isn't it? But what Paul is teaching us here is that though it's in our nature to retaliate, it's a part of our sinful nature to retaliate. It's not of God to take revenge unless you're God. Not physically are we to take revenge, not with words either. Sometimes we get this confused, well, I didn't do anything. I just slandered him or her all around the office, behind his or her back, but I didn't do anything to him or her. That's part of what it means not to take revenge, not to repay evil for evil. When someone, by not saying a word, by letting God take vengeance. And if you're going to do this, you're going to have to really believe that God means what he says when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You have to believe that, that God will take care of the wrongs that are done in this world. And he does in numerous different ways. Sometimes, as Paul reminds us in chapter 13, God takes his vengeance for people's wrongs through the civil authorities. God uses the government, Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 13, to avenge the evil others do to you. This is why we have law courts and a penal system, not just so that the government or the system can do what it needs to do, but Paul says that it's so that God can be the avenger, verse four, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. When the government punishes evil doing, God is doing it along with them. Sometimes, even when the government doesn't do it, God does it directly himself. You think about a man called Nabal in the Old Testament, He left David and his men out there hungry and alone in the wilderness when he should have helped them, and God took revenge, and Nabal's heart became like a stone, we read, and he died. And sometimes a person who has harmed you may seem to get off scot-free in this life, but even then, the verse is still true, God will repay, and he'll do it in the world that is to come. These are the things that keep us from taking our own vengeance and leaving room for the wrath of God, believing that God will repay. So that's what we're not to do. Verse 17a, never pay back evil for evil. But again, there's another side of the coin. How do you respond to those who persecute you? Well, Paul goes on to say it's not enough simply to refrain from taking revenge. Paul says... I want you not only to not pay back evil for evil, but I want you actually to pay back good for evil. Isn't that what he says in verse 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Or verses 20 and 21, the same thing. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's not enough simply not to pay back evil, but God actually wants us to pay back good when someone does us evil. Now that's astonishing, isn't it? Paul is writing to Christians at Rome of all places, in the shadow of despotic emperors who often had it in for both Jews and Christians. And Paul is saying to these people, some of whom were going to be persecuted to the very end of their lives, Bless those who persecute you. And so those who persecute you, often, almost always, on a far lesser scale than these people we're dealing with, surely we should do the same. Don't just respond to people's vindictiveness with silence and with meekness. Do that, yes, but then respond to it with blessings and generosity and kindness toward your enemies. We simply can't explain this away. Every culture in the world would like to explain this away, but we cannot explain this away. We must do what Paul says in verse 14. We must bless those who persecute us. It doesn't mean that we try to stand in the way of God's wrath if the government is bringing it upon them or God is bringing it upon them directly. But as far as we in interpersonal relationships are concerned, we must do good to those who persecute us. And how do we do it? Well, Paul explains in verse 20. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. A couple of years ago, I was looking for a friend on the Internet. He'd moved to Britain, and I was trying to find uh, his blog site so I could read about what he was doing there. And I typed in his name, and what came up was actually an article um, where he was just mentioned as, as a, a footnote with the picture In this article, what had happened was at Southern Seminary in Louisville, there had been a great protest of people protesting that the seminary was simply in their classrooms teaching what the Bible says about sexual behavior and what is deviant and what is biblical. And so there was a protest of a number of people that came to the seminary and picketed and so on. And I was typing in my friend's name, Matt and the thing that came up that I found was an article about that protest. And then with the article, there was a picture of Matt with his name underneath it, handing out bottles of water to the protesters in the hot weather. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. That's the spirit of Romans 12.20. It's the Chinese Christian pastor locked up in prison and praying every day for the warden. It's the criticized Christian family member who still always goes to the family gatherings out of love for the people there. It's the mistreated employee who remembers her boss's birthday. And so again, I just ask you, who is it in your life? Is there someone who seems to have it in for you? Bless those who persecute you. How can you show them Romans 12, 20 kind of love and kindness? Ask yourself, And then do it. And if you do it, Paul says, quoting Jesus in verse 20, and Jesus who is quoting Solomon, if you do this, if you give them your enemy food and drink and so on, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now you may have read that before and thought to yourself, that seems disingenuous. I'm going to do this kindness to you, but I'm really doing it so that I can heap burning coals on your head. Isn't that what it sounds like? Do good to them so that you can really do evil to them. Well, that's not what this passage is all about at all, is it? So it can't mean do good to them so that you can really do evil to them because the whole point of the passage is do them good. So what does Paul mean and what does Jesus mean and what does Solomon mean when all three of them say if you show kindness to your enemies, you'll heap burning coals on their head? Well, I think what's going on here is, is that they're speaking about the coals of conviction. The hot coals that the Holy Spirit sometimes piles on our heads. The way the Holy Spirit turns up the heat on our lives to show us our sins and bring us to repentance. If you are a Christian, you will know what it feels like to be convicted of your sin. To have the Holy Spirit turning up the heat and putting his finger on something in your life. It can be quite uncomfortable, can't it? When you know you're in sin and you haven't repented and you won't repent and God is just turning up the heat. It can be quite uncomfortable. It could be like hot coals. Somebody put hot coals down the back of your shirt. This kind of conviction can make you squirm. It can give you pain. And eventually, by God's good grace, it drives you to get relief in the cool waters of the gospel, doesn't it? That's the whole point. God puts hot coals down the back of your shirt so you'll run and dive into the living waters that will forgive your sins. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. When we show kindness to someone who has been a pain in the neck to us, to someone who's been anything but kind to us, that kindness that we show them may actually be a tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction. They may say to themselves, why is she treating me so well? She knows and I knows that I've been a jerk to her, and I really plan on continuing to be so. Why am I being treated so well? And as they ponder that question of being treated so well, what happens is that they begin to feel bad for their sins toward you. And as they feel bad for their sins towards you, they start to realize in their conscience that they're accountable to their maker. And these hot coals that are going down the back of their shirt may burn them at first, but it may actually lead them To run to the fountain, as Isaiah called it, that's been open for sin and uncleanness. To dive into the living waters that are found in Jesus and allow him to put out the fires. And it's far better that someone should have hot coals on their head now than an eternity of fire and brimstone later, isn't it? So when someone persecutes you, when someone harms you, says Paul, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So then, Paul has given us seven ways to respond to seven different kinds of people. But let me conclude by saying this. All these ways of loving other people are merely shadows. We love others in these multifaceted ways. We meet others in their various needs and conditions. We find ways to show love and honor to all manner of people because this is what the triune God has done for us. Our love is merely a shadow of His. Think it out with me. See if the Heavenly Father and the Son and the Spirit have not loved us exactly like Paul is describing our love for others in these verses. Does not our Heavenly Father, verse 15a, rejoice with those who rejoice? He does. The Bible says He loves to see us succeed. In fact, Zechariah tells us that God rejoices over us with singing. And does not the Lord Jesus, verse 15b, weep with those who weep? Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? Tis the Lord, the King of glory. Who is he, Hebrews 4, that sympathizes with our weaknesses? It's the Lord. He weeps with those who weep. Weep. And in taking on flesh and becoming one of us, did Jesus not in many ways become of the same mind with us? Verse 16a. And did he not, by becoming one of us, associate with the lowly, verse 16b? Surely he did. And hasn't Jesus given us the perfect example of what it means to be humble, to not be wise in one's own estimation, verse 16c? Here's the one who is God himself, and he's going around telling his disciples, I only do what my father's commanded me to do. I only speak his words. And did not Jesus excel, verse 17, at doing what was right in the sight of all men? Best of all, is it not true that our Heavenly Father has not paid back evil for evil, verse 17a, to those who believe? In our sins, the Bible says, we were God's enemies. And as God's enemies... He has done to us exactly what He commands us to do with our enemies. As God's enemies, He fed us. He gave us to drink. He kept us alive all those years that we were running from Him. And far more than that, though we were His enemies, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. And He sent His Holy Spirit to heap the burning coals of conviction upon us to bring us to repentance and to bring us to life. God has done for us exactly what he is asking us to do for others, and he's done it in far more remarkable ways. How good God has been to us. As we saw in Psalm 65, God's wagon is overflowing with blessings for us. He has loved us in every situation, every kind of person in this room. I hope that you've received that love. I hope that you have turned to this God and said, I am going to stop running from you, and I'm going to start running to you. I'm going to come to Christ and I'm going to trust him to forgive my sins. I'm going to trust him to love me exactly like I'm called to love others. God has been so good to us. We ought to trust him. We ought to run to him for his love. And we ought, in light of his great love for us, in light of what Paul calls the mercies of God there in verse 1, be willing to listen when God teaches us how we ought to respond in love to each person.